Welcome to the Cynic Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China. Subscribe to our access program and tap directly into our digital newsroom through our Slack channel, or receive discounts on tickets to our conferences and free admission to our live shows. Plus, you get early access to this very podcast. SubChina is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm in New York today, where I am joined by SubChina's indefatigable editor in chief, Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, man, how are you? <laughs> I'm feeling rather fatigable right now, actually. <laughs> to get up at three yesterday morning to get on a plane to New York. Which, yeah, because that's only because you missed the other flight. Right? Yeah, well, you don't have to tell the listeners uh, that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, today, we are honored to have with us a scholar whose work both of us, I think, have followed for, for some time. You actually know Andrew Chubb, right? You've known, you've We've known Andrew. each other for yeah. many years, I guess, since I first went to Australia. I've that just must have him. been 2010 or so. Right. Okay, first time today. But Andrew is a fellow this year at the Princeton, Harvard, China, and the World Program, and we are delighted to have him stateside. Uh, Andrew writes extensively on Chinese foreign policy, especially as it relates to its maritime disputes in the South and East China Seas, and he writes as well on Chinese nationalism and on public opinion, and today he's going to be talking about how all these three things intersect, how popular nationalism in China impacts China's behavior in the South China and East China Seas, or doesn't. <laughs> Andrew wrote a paper on that very topic, on how much much popular nationalism really does shape China's maritime behavior. And his answer, in short, is not as much as you'd think, uh, which is rather surprising. And as soon as I read it, I reached out to him to see whether he'd be interested in doing the show. The stars have aligned, and here we are together in New York. Andrew, a very warm welcome to Seneca. Thanks. It's a pleasure. In fact, it's more than a pleasure because I've been a listener since way, way back way back in my China-watching infancy. So uh, apologies <laughs> if I'm a little starstruck. <laughs> nah, don't be ridiculous. So I, I don't recall where I, I first heard the quote, um, and I don't even know if I'm getting it verbatim at all, but I, I've heard it often enough that it has become something of a, of a truism, and not just for China folks, but it's the, the idea that even authoritarian states are ultimately answerable in some way. They're ultimately responsive to public opinion. And I think all of us who follow goings-on in China uh, have come across this idea pretty often, you know, when it comes to the country, the subject of our study, uh, the idea that China has to factor in public opinion, its foreign policy. Um, though I think most of us recognize that that a lot of that public opinion can be fabricated, that China does a good job of, of sort of ginning up nationalist sentiment when it suits its purposes. Um, so, Andrew, how did it occur to you in the first place to challenge what I think is, you know, established conventional wisdom about popular nationalism and its role in, in the South China Sea? Well, first of all, of course, I would be the first to agree that public opinion does, in fact, shape the Chinese state's behavior in all sorts of ways. But that's not the same thing as saying that it shapes behavior in a particular policy area. Mm. Uh, and so what the sort of genesis of this project was at the beginning of my PhD research back in 2012, I was kind of investigating the causes of uh, China's policies in the South China Sea. And I repeatedly sort of came across this idea that it's really aimed at, at the public, uh, that it's aimed at public opinion. Hmm. I saw it across academic papers, obviously. There's some very prominent books that make this argument. There's uh, US government reports that refer to this. And I also found a very interesting article uh, whose, I even forget the author, but uh, it basically made the case that the nationalism theory uh, of why China sort of behaves in the way it does in the in the foreign policy realm 
is basically an invention or is heavily propounded by the U.S. Navy because there's no other rational reason to expect that uh, China would actually want to challenge the U.S. in East Asia at the stage of development that it was at. And so this kind of caught my attention and I thought it's probably about time that somebody systematically investigate the claims. So the first thing was to to kind of specify some hypotheses about how it might happen and uh, see whether that is how these uh, cases played out. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, that's, you know, the, the idea is very pervasive. I, I'm sure Kaiser and I have, have made exactly the same claims. I mean, it, it is a given in much of the discussion about China that what happens on the street is going to affect government policy with Japan. And, yeah, and, and in the South China Sea. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I can offer a hearty mea culpa. I'm certainly guilty of that, too. And, but I, I love it when my ideas are, are disproven uh, so systematically like this. But the Chinese party state does, though, promote this idea that its own choices are constrained, right? Uh, it likes to, to, to say, like, look at these gigantic flames, this conflagration behind me. All my people are in the streets. And so in this diplomatic you know, bargain that we're in now, as we sit down, you've got to keep this in mind and remember that I can't compromise that much because I need to appease this angry population. They do that, though, right? Sure. Okay. Sure. That's uh, well documented in Jessica Chen Weiss's work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I was going to say uh, she's, she's, she's the person on this. So, Andrew, how did you design your research? Um, you know, how did you uh, hit upon this means of actually testing the proposition that assertive maritime behavior was driven by domestic nationalism? You can get really methodological here. It's good. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, well, we have a lot of wonks in our listenership, so well, go, the f- go nuts. <laughs> right. Well, the first thing that I sort of noticed about this research question was that the hypothesis that nationalism drove a particular foreign policy action is much easier to disprove than to prove. And so the first thing that occurred to me was that for it to be even plausibly driven by public opinion, then the state must at least let the people know that it's taken uh, the, the action in question. Through uh, state media coverage? Through- whether through official comments that, that uh, accept that the incident occurred or through state media coverage or at least through sort of not downplaying it and disavowing the credit. And so one of the ironies, as, as I'll discuss later, is that a lot of popular nationalists' online commentary kind of assumes that China is the passive victim criticizes the government for not doing enough against rival countries' kind of provocations in these maritime and territorial disputes. And in sort of making that assumption, um, they're, they're really kind of accepting the government's own version of events, which is that China is always the victim. China has never done anything remotely provocative, uh, remotely assertive in uh, these types of disputes. So that's one of the tests, that they would announce it, that they would draw attention to it if that were, in in fact, the case that it was in answer to or being driven by popular nationalism. That is the first question to ask uh, if you're wondering about the role of public opinion. Obviously, uh, the the public needs to know about it for uh, the state to have been motivated by impressing the public. Yeah. How else would you test that proposition? Right. So uh, in the paper, I outlined two possible main pathways by which hardline public opinion could plausibly influence state conduct. One of them is the sort of more direct mechanism under which the state basically responds to public opinion and tries to impress public opinion by taking a confrontational foreign policy action. And another variation of that would be that it was trying to divert attention. But uh, again, the expectations of what we would see 
are basically the same because if it's a diversion, then you'd expect the government to be drawing attention towards the issue. But there's a second mechanism or a pathway, causal pathway, potentially between public opinion and foreign policy. This is something that uh, Stanley Rosen and Joe Fusmith wrote about uh, back in the early 2000s, is the possibility that hawkish public opinion on a mass level could actually affect internal policy debates and help hardliners to sort of get across the line in any policy debates or even kind of uh, be used by hardliners to attack their more moderate rivals and kind of diminish their influence and thereby uh, achieve influence over that particular policy area. Uh, James Riley, also another Australian-based scholar, provided a pretty systematic uh, account of this process in relation to Japan a couple of years back in, in his book. Um, and so the expectations of what we'd, what we'd see if this process was happening would be that you know, the central state media are not going to be all singing the same tune. Right. We're going to expect to see the coverage of the issue being driven maybe from the margins or from provincial newspapers. Um, there's an example from 2009 that I outline in my a short monograph that I've done um, that kind of expands on this paper. Uh, and that's the issue of the Sino-Indonesian fisheries conflict around where the Nine Dash Line intersects with Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. And uh, what we saw there was in 2009, uh, a bunch of uh, media reports, a lot of them from uh, particular media outlets, the International Herald Leader, Guoji Shenchu Daobao, was uh, one of them. And then there were a couple of other provincial papers, really made a big issue of Chinese fishermen being arrested by Indonesian authorities in what they claim to be Chinese traditional waters. That it now, was absent in other other reporting venues and other, other, that's other right. media it was, outlets. That's so. right. I traced it through the Baidu News archive and found that it was heavily driven by a handful of media outlets. It wasn't a centrally driven uh, agenda-setting process. And were and, those media outlets in some way linked to an individual faction or individuals? And it wasn't just maybe provincial interests. This province happened to have, for example, a bigger vested interest in, in fisheries in that particular geography. It's possible. The Guangzhou Rubao, I believe, was one of the papers um, that, that provided a big splash on that issue. Uh, it's hard to say uh, exactly, but one thing you can say is that repeatedly in these stories, the fisheries administration and particularly the fisheries law enforcement uh, fleets uh, are quoted as sources are sort of portrayed in a very positive light and this is around the time when the uh, possibility of a unification of china's different maritime paramilitary forces was starting to come on the agenda and so probably the most likely uh, sub-state actor to perhaps been behind this would be the fisheries administration or the fisheries law enforcement fleets. Uh, okay. So, so that's what that's what a, a sort of sub-state uh, policy contest So I can sum this up then. Like. So you have like, basically you have this rally around the flag effect and this wag the dog effect, right? These are both what you would call, you know, addressing, I think you call it in your paper, legitimacy deficit, right? And then the second group is, maybe, you know, factional politics. It's elite contention, as you call it, right? Elite contention, um, and that can work through both the policy contest type of situation that I just outlined in relation to the Indonesian fishing incidents, uh, or another variation that James Riley focuses on, um, which is that elevated levels of intrastate competition, elite political contests, potentially distract the state 
and change the incentives of the different elite actors so that it's more likely that they'll tolerate upswells in nationalist mobilization. And once it gets to the tipping point and becomes a sort of wave of mobilization and, and the, the attention levels among society get that high, then it becomes an independent constraint on what the state uh, right. might otherwise have wanted to do. And Riley cites some examples of that in, in terms of Japanese... Uh, flame you f- fanned up spills the banks and then suddenly it's a problem you have to address. That's right. Or not necessarily that it's fanned up in the first place. It, it could be a spontaneous uh, nationalist movement. Uh, for example, uh, I believe the, the Chichihar uh, chemicals weapons... Uh, issue in the early 2000s. I'm not familiar Uh, with that. What happened there? uh, So it was um, a fairly spontaneous organization sprang up seeking compensation from Japan. Oh, for uh, 731? Yes, right, for for, uh, victims of of the chemical weapons uh, programs. Chichihar Um, is a city in Heilongjiang province. Actually, that's where I was when I learned about the, the... the Tiananmen about the, the massacre and being... I, I went to Chi Chi Har just because it had such a ridiculous name. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> why you go, you go to Bungbu and then you go to Bungbu too. Yeah, yeah, Jeremy has a thing for cities with weird names. Yeah, Chi Chi Har is a weird. Name. Um, Andrew, can I can I sort of backtrack a bit because I'm getting a little confused, a little lost in the weeds here. So basically, um, I'm all about the weeds. Yeah, we're all about the weeds. Um, Basically, the the legitimacy deficit you're talking about, that means that this is a case where the state da- is responsive to popular nationalism. Right. And it is doing it in order to uh, make up for a legitimacy deficit. Yeah, or divert attention or to divert a foreign attention. policy issue. And the other case that you identify is elite contention, which means that elite groups, sub-state actors are using nationalism to get what they want. That's one possibility. Or the competition Mm. between elite groupings means that the state doesn't have its normal capacity to be able to suppress any spontaneous upswells in nationalist sentiment. And that's what apparently happened in the early 2000s, as outlined by Riley. So what would then the tests be to to, to see that either a legitimacy deficit or an effort to address legitimacy deficit is at work or that there's elite contention in play? Just well, to review. Yeah, sure. So for the for the more direct mechanism of the legitimacy deficit sort of driving the state to respond to public opinion, you're basically looking for the state to publicize the actions or to allow publicity of the actions in question, uh, to claim the credit, to not actively refute the credit and said say sort of nothing to see here, that we didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a if it's a, a diversionary type of scenario, you'd be looking for a sort of coincidence with uh acute legitimacy issues, mm-hmm. so uh, particular issues that the state might be diverting attention away from. Um, and if it's the sort of tail wags the dog type of scenario, then you might look for upswells in popular nationalist mobilization. So signs, maybe popular protests is the most visible of them, um, but you can also study the uh, general sort of media coverage uh, through, as I, as I mentioned before, through Baidu News, Ar- uh, News Archive. Uh, and also through signs the, of elite contention if you have like one sub-state actor represented, you know, over-represented in media coverage because of, of well, power bases that they have in particular regions or with particular media organizations. So that would be the second pathway. Yeah, right. um, but uh, the, the first pathway, you'd, you'd be looking for uh, upswells in uh, attention from, oh, okay. from the society. Uh, that are otherwise unexplained. They're not. They're not a matter of the state channeling attention towards the issue. 
but rather their response to some external event or some spontaneous movement um, of, of activists. And you can also, I, I should mention, uh, another really important tool for tracing this is the Baidu Index, uh, which is rather like Google Trends, uh, Baidu Jishu, um, where you can plug in a, a search term and uh, see how look, much it's been searched for. Right? You can see you see how much it's been searched for on a daily basis, uh, and so that gives you a good gauge of the timing of surges in attention. And so, if the timing of a surge of, of a, a popular attention towards a foreign policy issue comes before the state takes a, a, a more assertive foreign policy action. Um, more chance that it's causal, right? Then there's a greater possibility. It can't be causal if the wave of mobilization or the wave of interest comes after the foreign right. policy action. Andrew, we, I think I, I'm starting to you know, get a good grasp of the theory now, but uh, let's look what you did practically. Can we take each of the five cases that you looked at, uh, outlining what the actions were, and then looking uh, at whether and to what extent popular nationalism may have been a driver? First up was the 2006 to 2007 period when China was regularizing maritime rights defense and implementing routine patrols in the South China Sea. What was that all about? And what is your best evidence for your claim that this was not about a public clamoring for more assertive maritime behavior? Right, sure. That's that's a really important case uh, because the sort of patterns of action that have been laid down uh, in 2006 and 2007 that weren't really seen before, the regular patrolling uh, with these paramilitary law enforcement vessels in the disputed waters, uh, they've continued and, in fact, intensified uh, basically every year since then. Um, and so that, that's, that's sort of why it's a really important case and why, it, in fact, to explain this case is to explain a lot of the changes in, in China's overall policy in these maritime disputes. And so what we see in that case is that the regular rights defence patrols in the East and South China Seas commenced in 2006, mid-2006, uh, July, I think it was. They, that was in the East China Sea. And basically what it means is that the maritime law enforcement agencies make sure that there is a minimum presence of uh, Chinese vessels in the area for which they're given responsibility, which in the East and South China Sea includes uh, wide expanses of disputed waters. And so that was rolled out in the East China Sea in mid-2006. It was rolled out in the South China Sea in early 2007. The South China Sea is much bigger, so it took some time to properly cover the entire South China Sea area. But by the end of 2007, they were sort of sending these regular patrols. When we um, talk about maritime enforcement agencies, we're not necessarily talking about the PLA Navy, right? We're just so that, that we're clear. Correct, yeah. Uh, in fact, they quite assiduously... Um, developed these maritime law enforcement agencies' capabilities in order to avoid using uh, the PLA Navy. We've got some um, examples of Chinese officials actually saying that, you know, because we are a non-military force, we can show up more in sensitive waters. Hmm. Um, so it was definitely a, a, a deliberate strategy. Now, to answer the second part of the question, um, what's the best evidence that it wasn't driven by popular nationalism? That's fairly simple. The, the state didn't start talking about it until well after they'd rolled out the policy. So if, in fact, they were responding to public opinion, public clamour to do more in the maritime disputes, uh, then we'd expect them to be telling the public pretty soon after in order to alleviate that legitimacy deficit. But, in fact, we don't see that. We see them uh, being referred to you know, once very, very in, in passing in early 2007, wasn't hmm. wasn't very heavily promoted, and then the next time they're really mentioned is mid 2008. So, 
if they were a response to public opinion, we'd expect the state to be talking about it much sooner than that. Absolutely. That's interesting. Um, so the next that we, you, you talked about was the impeccable uh, a U.S. naval vessel. And that, that incident was in March of 2009, if, if I remember correctly. That's right. Well, what happened there and, and why, again, do you not see evidence of popular nationalism as a driver? Well, the impeccable incident is, again, a really sort of signal moment in the changes in China's maritime policy. Uh, created a uh, big stir in Western media and from there among Western governments, I think. It did a lot to sort of generate this perception of a, of a more assertive China. And it's part of the reason why, I think, people have the impression that China's assertiveness in its maritime disputes really started in 2009 or 2010 or even later. That, that uh, tends to be when I've dated it too. Jeremy, you too, right? I mean. Um. I don't recall. Uh, that's, I've, I've always sort of thought of it that way. I mean, I thought uh, this is, you know, opening months of the new administration, the Obama administration, testing the limits and so forth. So, uh, again, not driven by popular nationalism, huh? So maybe uh, remind us of the details of the actual incident. Sure. So what happened in the, uh, the impeccable incident was um, for several days, uh, a sort of flotilla of Chinese uh, fishing boats, which were probably maritime militia, and as, as well as some support vessels from maritime agencies, I think the fisheries law enforcement had a presence there and a PLA. Uh, that was interesting. The PLA this is one of the rare in, uh, occasions where the PLA was kind of conspicuously present, uh, although I don't think it was a, a sort of uh, a warship as such. I think it was um, a PLA a survey ship. Someone like Andrew Erickson could sort of tell you the details with a lot more authority. But uh, it was there was a PLA vessel there in any case. And then for several days, they kind of uh, maneuvered around the impeccable. There, was, there were jets in the sky kind of swooping past. And basically, they sort of made clear that uh, the, the impeccable uh, needed to cease its activities. Which you, were, the impeccable was a frigate or a No, the impeccable destroyer? was a, uh, a, basically a spy ship ah. um, searching for Chinese submarines in the Chinese exclusive economic zone. In the, South, in the South China Sea, off Hainan province. Actually, so, in, in the EZ. That's right. Um, so, yeah, clearly in the EZ, about, I think it was 75 nautical miles off of Hainan province. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where the South China Sea dispute involves uh, a disagreement between the US and China over the interpretation of the UNCLOS, the right. UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, which is quite ambiguous on this question. Basically, uh, the UNCLOS says that uh, marine scientific research belongs is, is under the jurisdiction of the coastal state, um, but military activities are permitted in the exclusive economic zone. So the US says these are military activities, we're allowed to do them, and China says they're scientific research, so you're not allowed to do them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so you get these um, periodic um, uh, flare-ups between the US and China, although there has been, quite interestingly, um, some signs that China is kind of, uh, as its naval power and its, its ability to sort of send its navy around the world grows, it uh, seems to be gaining a new appreciation. For the uh, ability of, that UNCLOS grants to do these military activities in other people's EEZs. Right. Well, they've sent, uh, they've, they've exercised their rights to, uh, to conduct. Strictly uh, unscientific. <laughs> right, right. Strictly unscientific military activities in other uh, countries' so, EEZs. 
Uh, and then, you know, what was the popular re- reaction or lack of it? Right. So the interesting thing about this case is if you trace it through the Baidu uh, search index, you can see that there's a surge in interest in the South China Sea issue uh, right after uh, the state mm, takes mm. these assertive actions against the U.S. Uh, for obvious reasons. It's, uh, it's you know, it's... Um, it's a newsworthy topic sure. for the Chinese media, and it's a the prospect of uh, Sino-American clashes is something that piques the curiosity and interest of a lot of uh, uh, Chinese media consumers. Well, isn't it possible that they were banking legitimacy in doing this? I mean, they did allow considerable coverage afterward. Right? That's right. Um, but if you look at what they said about the issue, um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokespersons were repeatedly asked what about this incident that the U.S. is complaining about? They filed a diplomatic protest. And at no stage did the, the foreign ministry even, even admit that uh, an, an incident had really occurred. Hmm. In fact, they said that you know, China was the victim of, of uh, illegal U.S. encroachment. Uh, the U.S. is inverting black and white. And, and what, was, what was probably even more interesting was that the, the military also uh, said the same thing. Now, I think probably the most compelling piece of evidence that this was not a nationalist legitimacy ploy was that uh, if you look at the comments by fisheries officials on on this incident, they actually, uh, in the Chinese language, media coverage, they deny that any uh, incident, any incident occurred. Um, but then there's an internal, or not quite internal, uh, not for public consumption, sure. how you describe yeah. it. The fisheries yearbooks, which are not readily accessible to the public, you know, openly claim that we, you know, organized fishing vessels to expel the US warship from our waters, which is the kind of thing that you'd expect them to be saying to the public if they were trying to build legitimacy. And not in hiding it in some fisheries, right. you know. Um, That's right. Yearbook. And what's, right. what's also in, in, really interesting is that uh, the only real admissions in those in those early days after the incident occurred, the only real admissions that anything had happened on the PLA side uh, were in English language publications. Uh, so the Chinese language coverage didn't have equivalent uh, references to uh, Chinese boats taking you know, justified rights defense actions, things like that. Okay, wow. so over two so far. Yeah. Um, so the next one you look at is the tensions over the Scarborough Shoal, uh, which is uh, a disputed uh, South China Sea feature that the Philippines also claims. And this happened in the spring and summer of 2012. Surely that one had a bit to do with popular nationalism? Yeah, this one is uh, one of the more likely examples of where popular nationalism could have had an impact. One thing to point out about this, the timing of this case, uh, was that Number one, there's some evidence, I would say, to uh, support the, the idea that either of these uh, legitimacy deficit or elite contention models uh, might actually describe part of the causation of this incident. The legitimacy deficit, uh, the evidence for that is the fact that there was a sort of prolonged period of China not doing very much in the South China Sea. After the peak of tensions in 2011, there was a prolonged period where they were kind of playing nice with the Southeast Asian countries, signed a few agreements with the Aquino administration, also with the Vietnamese, and uh, they copped a lot of criticism, sustained criticism um, on the Chinese internet for this, Um, sort of routinely being portrayed as sort of selling out the country's interests and uh, sort of uh, allusions to the late Qing dynasty and things like that. Mm. Um, 
And so the possibility is that this kind of had a cumulative effect and that by uh, the time that the incident occurred, about eight, nine months later, um, the, uh, the pressure was so great that they you know, couldn't not respond. Um, there's a few reasons to think that that wasn't the case, though. Um, number one, the level of attention on the issue had really dropped away by March, April uh, of 2012. It was much lower than it had been in the second half of 2011 when China was actually playing nice. And the other, the other reason is that if we try to consider, well, how else might China have responded? Since 2006, China's response to this kind of incident hadn't actually been tested. So, uh, and in that time, the state had shown all sorts of signs of being increasingly interested in Scarborough Shoal, sending more uh, fisheries, you know, state-organized fishing fishing missions out there, more patrols in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, these are documented in the in in the maritime agency materials, and so it's quite likely that given the increase in China's relative power since that time, since 2006, the last time their response was tested. Ready to try it again. They, they, they would be much less willing. And when I say uh, China's response was tested, a similar kind of incident, uh, that's the last time a similar kind of incident occurred in which the Philippines attempted to arrest Chinese fishermen at the shoal. Um, now, the other thing to point out about this is that China just wasn't around in 2006, the last time the Philippines arrested fishermen at the, at the Scarborough Shoal. They hadn't rolled out their regular rights defense patrols. Uh, they occasionally sort of went past there, um, but they didn't have anywhere near the kind of presence of their maritime law enforcement vessels in the area. Uh, and so if, if you sort of trace the early processes involved in this incident, it actually involved two law enforcement vessels. The Philippines, um, the Scarborough Shoal incident basically involved the Philippines attempting to arrest some arrest Chinese fishermen, some Chinese fishermen uh, using their newly acquired uh, Navy ship, which the US had uh, gifted them um, not too long ago, just about five months earlier. They're one Navy ship. They're, 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 they're best Navy ship right, anyway. Right. Um, and uh, they sent a, cert- a, a board and search party over to check the Chinese fishing boats and found evidence of uh, illegal fishing and collection of giant clams and took some photos um, and then headed back to their ship. And that created a window of opportunity for China's maritime vessels to arrive. Um, the only reason it created a window of opportunity for China's maritime vessels to arrive and create the standoff was that China's maritime vessels happened to be in the area on a regular rights defense patrol. And that wouldn't have been the case before 2006? It almost certainly wouldn't have been the case before 2006. So you're saying that this is more about uh, Chinese power having risen, having had, you know, the resources available to have done something about this in the first place, and not so much about uh, actual popular nationalism? It's definitely part of it. Um, uh, Whether it's sort of sufficient to explain it, uh, another piece of that puzzle is, of course, the um, the increasing interest that the Chinese agencies were showing in Scarborough Shoal ahead of that. Um, but also, um, I mean, one of the claims that's been made about Scarborough Shoal um, from officials on the Chinese side is that uh, it was the circulation of the photos uh, of the Chinese fishermen under arrest, under the scorching sun, uh, that sort of prompted China to respond. They had to respond. Uh 
because of the public outcry. But that can be fairly easily disproven because, well, because the, the photos, the incident was already sort of 18 hours in by the time the photos started to circulate. Oh, so the timeline just doesn't match up. Right. Right, right, I see. In the next case, in the Diaoyu crisis that broke out in the summer and fall of 2012, uh, there must have been, there were similar factors at play, I, I, I imagine. Um, just to remind everyone of that crisis, it began, again, detentions uh, of this, in this case of Hong Kong activists or Hong Kong based, you know, uh, what do they call it? Uh, my mom actually was. Bao Diao. Was, yeah, Bao Diao, these Bao Diao activists. <laughs> Bunch of nutters. Uh, Your mom is a member. She was. She was. I mean, I, I tried to dissuade her from participating in it. Wow. Can she I wasn't interview? getting on a flotilla or anything. <laughs> you don't want to talk to her. She's like, well, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mom. It's sorry, true. Mom. Uh, anyway, it please, accelerated. Please, Mrs. Guo, I'd be very, if, you'd, if you'd be willing, I'd be very interested if to hear your story. If you're listening, Mrs. Guo, don't listen to your son. Anyway, it accelerated when Japan decided to, to actually nationalize the islands, which I think we should probably remind people was because it was Ishihara, the Tokyo mayor, this right-wing nutter, was, was going to actually buy them from the private the family that actually you know nominally owned the island so the nationalization was was undertaken to try to defuse the crisis but in fact it just proved to be totally incendiary anyway so then flotillas and then arrests um again this seems like it's got the fingerprints of popular nationalism all over it or, right or, or nationalism not. sort of exploded in china in sure that absolutely case, you know? i mean we've all we've talked to christopher cairns about that uh we've we've, we've talked a lot about you know the august and september 2012 incidents in the East China Sea, but uh, what, what was what was really going on here? So, uh, as you've described it, you know Shintaro Ishihara, the mayor of Tokyo, sort of put this issue on the agenda by raising the money to buy the islands from from the family that uh, held the title. Uh, three, I think it was three of the islands or five of the islands. I can't remember which. But this actually sort of started uh, around the end of 2011. Right. And then uh, Ishihara, I think, first announced it in March or April of 2012. Uh, so there was a pretty long lead-in time during which China was trying to convince Japan not to do it. Now, it could well be that the reason why they were trying to convince Japan not to do it was because they feared the backlash from Chinese public opinion, if they that, that, that it would poison Sino-Japanese relations. But on the other hand, once when, when you look at sort of how they dealt with public opinion, the, uh, the, the sort of sequence that you mentioned uh, involving Hong Kong activists in August, followed by the nationalization in September, in September uh, really indicates that uh, the kind of explosions of nationalism that did occur were primarily a result of the state making a decision to actually channel public attention towards the issue to kind of warn Japan not to do it. Uh, so uh, the Chris Ken's Alan Carlson paper that you mentioned detected a notable decline in censorship rates on Weibo. Of, it's of open the gates. Center. Right. Um, at, at, right when you'd expect them, right. uh, if they were struggling to keep nationalism under control, you'd expect them to sort of be suppressing it at that time. Uh, and also, I mean, there's there's other evidence as well that that um, August wave of nationalism was uh, uh, kind of intended to happen by the state or channeled uh, towards the issue by the state. Um, one is just the, 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 the fact that the Baodiao movement was allowed to actually depart Hong Kong and then reach the islands. Um, those missions are routinely intercepted by either mainland 
uh, maritime security authorities, or more commonly, uh, they're just prevented from leaving by the, the Hong Kong authorities. In this, in this case, they made it out. They ran the gauntlet, um, which uh, is probably not a coincidence in light of the fact that the it, it could say, have been a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, but then then we look at the state how the state media responded to it, and you had sort of CCTV and the central state media actually covering it blow by blow, hour by hour. You know, the activists have reached this point, the activists have reached that point, and then the activists have landed on the island and been arrested by Japan. So it was it was fairly inflammatory, and it was fairly clear that the state was happy to see a a surge of attention towards this issue. Um, So in that case, you can see popular nationalism as a kind of part of a kind of deterrence strategy, trying to um, warn Japan against going ahead with the island purchase. Now, what happened after that was that Japan went through with it. They ignored all the warnings, including the warnings uh, from President Hu Jintao himself to, to Prime Minister Noda. Um, I guess that happened at, at ASEAN or something. That's no, right, no, at no, the APEC. APEC, APEC, right. Yeah. Um, I remember Richard McGregor talks about that in his book. Right, and, and the very next day, the Japanese side went ahead with the transaction, and uh, China's state media immediately sort of reacted with very much with one voice right. of um, extreme, shrill condemnation. And it was only, it was four days later that China first began to send these uh, maritime law enforcement vessels into the territorial waters around the Diaoyu Islands. Uh, so this is the main move that China made on the water at that time. And the question is whether that was part of, whether, whether that was aimed at sort of appeasing public opinion. And here you invoke this kind of counterfactual, which is if there hadn't been public opinion in play, would China have behaved the same way? And what do you conclude from that? That's right. Or another way of putting that counterfactual is, you know, did they want to do that anyway? Right. Um, And in fact, there are a number of pieces of evidence that they did. Um, There's state media articles sort of touting how uh, breaking the situation of Japan's on-water control uh, around the Diaoyu Islands would be a good thing, something that, you know, we we should go for. And uh, also the fact that there, there were a number of other responses which, if you think about it, things like suspending the talks with Japan over, I think it was, it was a WTO meeting in, in Tokyo. There was talks with Japan over a crisis management mechanism. The, these types of things you can quite easily imagine that China would have preferred that they actually went ahead. And so counterfactually, they may well not have happened if it wasn't for the need to, to, to appear to be doing something for public opinion. But the on-water patrols since that time, probably not part of that because, uh, I mean, they've, they've been repeatedly, I mean, just, just look at the situation now. China was able to more than... Make up for... It was, was able to more than make up for the gains that, uh, that, that Japan had been able to make, uh, that it perceived that Japan was making through the nationalisation Taylor Fravel has a paper on this where, where he talks about the kind of perception among the uh, Chinese authorities that the, 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 the transaction sort of represented a real threat to China's position in the dispute. And so that that's another very strong motivation for them wanting to increase their actual presence around the islands uh, because, and again, we can get into the weeds here, but uh, repeatedly in the Chinese maritime agency materials, they repeatedly express the view that simply being present 
in disputed waters uh, increases the strength of your claim to those waters in sure. legal sense. Sure, sure. So there's very strong alternative rationales for why China did what it did. There's a couple of other pieces of evidence. Um, one is that the real huge explosion of nationalist sentiments that happened over the weekend of, I think, the 14th and 15th of September. Of September. Um, this is where you saw the riots and kind of smashing and looting. That comes after China starts these patrols. Uh, so it wasn't that outpouring of, of uh, nationalist violence that sort of forced their hand. It could have been public opinion in a more general sense, but it wasn't those, those explosive uh, nationalist protests that forced the government's hand on that because right. they, that right. came after. Uh, but also, if the government was primarily concerned about uh, showing the public that it was sort of doing enough, uh, uh, that it was responding in a hardline manner, uh, then we wouldn't expect to see them uh, issuing orders as they did to kind of downplay things like there was, it, there was an order that went out to sort of not run headlines about China's fishing fleet, a thousand sails heading for Diaoyu, things like that. Uh, and if, they were, if, if popular nationalism was a major concern of theirs at the time, then we would expect them uh, to, to be uh, claiming that credit. By that weekend, you know, I think they had already seen that it was be assuming dangerous and, and difficult to control proportions too. And so maybe they, they had an interest in, in starting to curb it by that point. That's right. Yeah. So, Andrew, the, the last case you look at is the gigantic Chinese oil rig that Beijing parked just 220 kilometers off the Vietnamese coast in May of 2014. What was at work in this case? So this is probably another case uh, where China's it's, it's a f reasonably simple story of China's increased capabilities uh, because the actions that China took in this case are actually qualitatively quite similar to actions that they'd taken at regular intervals since the 1990s. 1997, 2004, 2007, uh, and again in 2010, they had positioned oil drilling equipment, large rig, oh, not so large rigs, I mean, in standard size <laughs> drilling rigs in uh, disputed waters with Vietnam and had coercive escorts mm -hmm. around them, protecting them from the uh, possibility of Vietnamese opposition on the water. What was really different in this case was that the, the rig was orders of magnitude larger. It was the Haiyang Shriel 981 uh, oil rig, you know, famously sort of gargantuan thing and so uh this was it was a similar kind of activity right uh, but on a much larger scale uh, and again with the escort ships as well whereas in the past you know it would have been maybe a handful of ships that would have been in guarding the the the, the oil drilling operation these were more uh, and better armed in this case they were they were they were far far more um and so uh, it was it was very pr provocative yes. uh, from the Vietnamese perspective, and they immediately responded by sending their own maritime militia and coast guard and uh, fisheries law enforcement. In this case, there was fleets. quite quite a tussle, right? I mean, there was they were fighting each other with with water cannons and and, and so forth. That's right, um, and so there, there were pretty dramatic on water clashes, yeah. and this was actually reported. Very briefly in the Chinese media, I remember it coming through in the push zone of one of the, the news apps, the Chinese news apps that I have on my phone. But it was very quickly uh, dampened down, hmm. um, sort of added to the, to the uh, do not report list. 
and there were subsequent orders that were revealed on um, the Ministry of Truth, uh, China right, Digital uh, Times, China Times right. that were saying don't report on the clashes uh, in, in the Paracel Islands. So once again, we see China taking uh, pretty meaningful assertive action in the South China Sea, uh, but not seeking to take the credit for it at all. In fact, after the Vietnamese outpouring of anti-Chinese sentiment that, that happened in response to this, the government managed to actually keep a lid on the issue in China quite successfully through a range of um, pretty sophisticated... Usual tools, internet censorship and whatnot, right? Yeah, yeah. there, there were some pretty fine-grained um, techniques of kind of uh, managing public opinion in that case. Um, for example, um, you know, the issue can be... There wasn't, there wasn't a total blackout on information about the issue because there was a lot of concern among the Chinese population for people, workers and other business people who were in Vietnam at the time. And when there's anti-Chinese violence in Vietnam, understandably, a lot of people were worried. And the authorities actually did allow a sort of trickle of information to, to go out there. But they also ordered all of the media to keep it out of the headlines. So basically, people who were already, who already knew about the issue could search it up and, and get information. Or if they went to the, directly to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website or to the Vietnamese uh, consulate or embassy website, they would find it, but the, the spread of that information was dramatically slowed mm -hmm, until mm -hmm. about 48 hours later when the government had kind of spoken with the Vietnamese side, the situation was under control, and they had a narrative to explain what had happened. And when they came out with that narrative, it, it certainly didn't involve anything uh, to do with assertive right, maritime right, right, right. operations on an unprecedented scale to, to look for, for oil in the vicinity of disputed islands. Right. There's no it muscle was, flexing, no, nothing like that. Right. Nothing right, like right, that right. whatsoever. It was, it was as though the, uh, the sort of anti-Chinese sentiments uh, that sort of burst out in Vietnam had just sort of come out of nowhere. There was, there was no explanation for it at all. It was nothing to do with any kind of assertive foreign policy actions. So that tells you that they weren't trying to use the foreign policy actions to, to uh, impress the domestic Chinese public. Right. So this, I, mean, I think you've presented a pretty persuasive case. Uh, how has it been received so far? I mean, there are a lot of people who look at this area. Uh, have you had any dissenting voices? Have you, people been you know, telling you, no, 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 the, the conventional wisdom, is, is, it stands, it's basically correct? Yeah, um, perhaps surprisingly, I, I haven't had a whole lot of pushback uh, okay. to date, although the real test will come over the next couple of years as uh, people maybe engage with the argument in other sort of academic articles. I, I think perhaps, I mean, it is, it is a fairly modest argument at the end of the day. Uh, it's limited in scope to these five cases, which uh, I've argued are quite important. And representative. Uh, and and to, to a large degree representative of the changes that have occurred in, in uh, China's policy in this area. But nonetheless, it's only the on-water aspects of it. So there are cases like the Diaoyu, uh, the Diaoyu case where the response involved from, from the Chinese side, the foreign policy response involved a number of different... Uh, diplomatic and... Right, right diplomatic yeah. and you know unofficial economic sanctions and things like that, mm -hmm. which could well have been targeted at impressing public opinion. I'm right. only talking about the uh, on-water actions. Yeah, it would be that, interesting to look at, you know, THAAD deployment and a bunch of other stuff too and, and see if it's... But I mean, my sense, you know, after reading it and talking to you about it is that what 
you know, a conclusion we could make is that the Chinese government uses public opinion more than it reacts to it in its foreign policy actions. Is that is that fair? I think it's it's a complex question because the Chinese government's ability to use public opinion as a sort of force of deterrence, as they call it, um, or at least as one Chinese scholar has called it, what I think quite aptly, it's hao gen wei shi, grassroots deterrence. The ability to do this is actually premised uh, on the fact that it really does pose some kind of risk at some level, an appreciable risk. Uh, and this, this goes back to Thomas Schelling and you know, deterrence theory. Uh, what you need is an appreciable risk that things might get out of control in order to make a deterrent threat. But you also, at the same time, need to be able to, adv- to, to assure your adversary that the threat won't just be carried out anyway if uh, the, the other side complies. You need to give them an incentive yeah, to so, actually, yeah, actually comply. Yeah, a modicum of control and, over it. Or, right, yeah. and so, the, so, so the, the kind of risk management techniques uh, and the, the, the ability to manage this, this, this plausible risk is actually sort of a part of why it's effective. Well, you're not doing them any favors. I mean, the Hogan is no longer going to work if, if your paper gets secret. out there. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, maybe you a last question because we, uh, we're running out of time. Could you offer our listeners, especially people like me who work in media or others in policymaking circles, some good ways to think about the relationship then between popular nationalism and foreign policy for the next time something flares up and we're tempted to draw lines of causality between the angry, jingoistic comments from uh, Fen Ching on Weibo um, and actual policy? Sure. Well, I think the number one thing is to just think about the counterfactual. So ask yourself... Would the state have acted differently if public opinion had been less nationalistic in this case? And if you can make a case for why the state uh, didn't actually want to take the actions that it did, uh, then you might be looking at a case that would have been influenced by public opinion. It's an um, excellent rule of thumb. That's a very, very good rule of thumb. Andrew, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and stick around with us for a couple of seconds to make recommendations. But before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Sign up for SubChina Access and show your support for Seneca and for the site and the newsletter. Uh, check out our growing catalog of podcasts in what we're now calling the Seneca Network. In addition to the session Seneca, we also have the uh, two great tech shows, the GGV996 podcast, where veteran VC Hans Tong and his colleague Zara Zhang interview, you know, it's really a who's who of, of the Chinese tech world. And also the new Pan Daily Tech Buzz China with Ray Ma and Ying Liu, uh, who give us the lowdown on the week's top tech news. And find them, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you have? Okay. So, you know, after moving to the United States, uh, in some ways I felt sort of like an illiterate baby uh, in the natural world uh, because I didn't know any of the plants and animals, really, the insects, the trees. And um, it's been quite a delight learning uh, about uh, America's plant life. But it's not easy to identify plants. And I found this great app. It's French originally, but uh, it now covers the whole globe. It's called PlantNet. And basically, you just take a photo with your phone of the flower or the leaf, uh, and uh, you upload it, and it uses some kind of AI uh, to uh, give you a bunch of uh, plants, uh, likely identifiers, and it works really, really well. Um, Have you tried Leaf Snap? Yeah, Leaf Snap. I I somehow find this plant net seems to work better. Okay, uh, it it does flowers as well, and. 
yeah, anyway, it's fantastic. And then you can, you know, be a good uh, media citizen and upload your photo once you've successfully identified the, the plant uh, so you can improve the service. Oh, good. I've got to try that one. I've been using LeafSnap, and it makes you, you know, put it against a white backdrop. Yeah, LeafSnap is, uh, and it doesn't do flowers, I Right, I it doesn't do flowers. Yeah. Fanfan uh, has a chi- I should find it and make sure to recommend it on the next. She's got a really good Chinese app that does all sorts of flora. Oh wow! I mean, okay. it's crazy. I mean, you can take pictures of of trees from a distance. You mm. can, uh, and it seems to be pretty good. Okay. I, I know, it's it's one of the the benign uses of AI that I'm very grateful for. <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent recommendation. Um, you so know, the I've robots been, are going to control us, but at least we'll know what the plants are. Exactly. I, I've been sort of obsessed with trees recently. So, yeah, good, good. Andrew, what do you have for us? Uh, well, my recommendation would be uh, sort of a Seneca re-up. Uh, I was listening recently to the Seneca podcast uh, with Joanna Chu and uh, Lucy Hornby. Oh, good. good. Uh, from last year. And the reason I was listening to it was because uh, this, uh, the, the list that they made of hundreds of women China experts um, has now been sort of formalized onto a website called New Voices. Yeah. Uh, that's new as in new the, the yeah. little uh, yeah. umlaut on the top. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I thought uh, since we've, uh, I'm not really doing anything to alleviate the um, Seneca lad problem that you mentioned here. Uh, so well, I thought, so you'd recommend so new voices. So I would recommend new voices. Uh, and in particular, I mean, since that time, I think at that time you were talking about 200 or so uh, names yeah. on the list of uh, women China experts. And it's now up to 450 that's plus. That's right. That's right. It's crazy. Um, and it and it's probably it probably can go even further. I, I I think I think it's far from an exhaustive list. Still, turns out it's a really good resource, resource for podcast hosts too, who are looking to book guests. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are actually we we've got a little announcement that we'll be making pretty soon about uh, something involving Joanna and new voices. So we'll excellent. Be talking. To them. Uh, very cool, very cool. So um, my recommendation, I, I want to recommend a book I just recently finished called The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. It's by uh, a German scholar named Yasha Monk, who's now here in the U.S. Uh, he also has a podcast, which is which is pretty good. Um, it's, it's, you know, one of these books about, you know, the populist uprising. Uh, this one really looks at the, the sort of contradictions between non-democratic liberalism of the sort that we've we've kind of been practicing here where it's true our polity is not particularly responsive to public opinion which is which links it to today's topic uh well, you know it, it it is quite dominated by technocrats by elites and on the other hand uh illiberal democracy which is what we are now succumbing to here in the united states of course in hungary with Viktor orban in poland uh in in india in all, a lot of other countries so it's 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 well written. I mean, it's a bit TED Talkish. It's a little bit World Economic Forumy, uh, a lot of, of of platitudes, but but it's it's still good and it's filled with good stats and and things like that about uh, the state of our politics today, and sound advice about what we ought to be doing if we really do care to preserve truly liberal democracy. So highly recommend that book. Um, anyway. Thank you so much again, Andrew, for taking the time to to to, uh, to, to join us here and, and to chat with us. Uh, can you remind our listeners what your Twitter handle is again, so that they can find you if they want to follow you? Sure, that's Zhubo Chubo, Z H U B O C H U B O. 
Okay, now where does that come from? Chubo, <laughs> chubo. Uh, that was me trying to get as close as I could to a uh, Chinese approximation of my surname and uh, not being able to decide which one was better. <laughs> okay. uh, my Chinese name is also Zhubo. Oh, uh, Zhubo. Okay. That's that's good. That's a good one. Uh, Jeremy, man, great to see you. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. So uh, we'll hopefully have you back on again soon, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.